0: My name
1: is Stephen King.
0: The ice is gonna break! Bad Rob, Bad love! Ah! You guys wanna go see a dead body?
2: Well, sometimes, that is is better. Hello and welcome back to the KingCast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. My name's Scott Wampler. And I'm Eric Vespey. And we are your hosts. Uh, we're here today with a very special bonus episode for you. This is uh, another of our KingCast interviews. And we're here today to speak with Beb Vincent, who will certainly need no introduction to the Dark Tower fans in our audience. For years, he wrote the News from the Dead Zone column for Cemetery Dance magazine before writing the invaluable The Road to the Dark Tower, which is a uh, authorized Dark Tower companion that pretty much instantly became mandatory reading for that particular fan base. More recently, he co-edited Flight or Fright, a horror anthology with King himself. That was in 2018. And today he's here on the KingCast. So, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the KingCast stage, Mr. Bev Vincent. Bev, how are you doing today?
0: Doing just fine. Pleased to be here.
2: Maybe a little cold. You're down in Houston.
0: Well, it's a little bit warm right now because I'm standing underneath a, a forced air vent. But yeah, outside is a little bit chilly. <laughs> <joy.
2: laughs> You're standing up while doing this interview. You're going to be tired yeah. by the end of it, baby.
0: No, I, I stand all the time. I have a stand up desk. Uh, my, my day's oh. work is always at a standing desk. So I'm, I'm see. Good. This
2: is I should have done this during quarantine. I've done nothing but put on weight in this chair for like a year. <laughs> we got to stop this. I'm kind of hoping for
1: the Wally future to catch up to us now. Post quarantine, we kind of need that. Need those chairs that just move us around. The little hover chairs.
2: <laughs> it's terrible, and we'll all get to spend a lot of time on doing the damage that we've done. But um, <laughs> I'm sure we'll, I'm sure we'll have fun with that, and at least we'll be vaccinated. Um, Bev, man, I, I I remember in the early 2000s when the last three Dark Tower books were coming out there wasn't the dark tower community as we know it today online or if there was i was not aware of it and accessing it i only had like a couple of friends in real life who were who were big on the books and i remember very specifically when the road to the dark tower came out and one of my dark tower friends went out and bought it and him showing it to me and my mind just being absolutely blown that someone had written a book about the dark tower it was like Holy shit, someone else out there not only loves The Dark Tower as much as we do, but they cared enough to write a whole book. Uh, thank you so much for for writing that. Uh, I, I could not have been more excited to read that book when it, when it came out.
0: Uh, it, it was certainly a, a pleasure uh, to work on. So the only Dark Tower community that I knew at the time was this old uh, forum, which was sort of like a precursor to Reddit called Usenet. Mm-hmm. and yeah. there was uh there was a thread for just about any topic under the sun and there was alt.books.stephenking and that's sort of where i got my uh start in the community uh of stephen king fans
2: yeah this is like this is like news groups and what have you right
0: yeah, yeah definitely yeah, absolutely yeah. News groups. yeah. and, and the, the king news group was really really vibrant um so when the, the green mile came out in 96 everybody there was reading the book at the same time because the book came out in installments. So we were, right. nobody was able to read ahead and spoil it. We were all there week by week by week, uh, reading it at the same pace. So that was, that was a really fun time.
1: Yeah, no, I'm going back through Green Mile right now, actually for, um, for a future episode and I'm hit by the nostalgia of that actually, because I was doing the same thing. I remember vividly buying each of the little thin, you know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, trade paperbacks at the supermarket. That's where, where I found them. Like, I, I don't know. I guess the bookstore was just not, like, close to me or whatever, but I knew where they would stock them in the supermarket, and that's where I got, like, at least half of my old battered copies were just from the local supermarket.
0: And, and Penguin was really interactive with the, the book in those days. Uh, with every new book, they released a new installment of a screensaver for, the, uh, for your Windows computer, which had little you know, action things that related to the, the the latest installment. There were quizzes and contests, you know, people could win, you know, manuscripts and all sorts of stuff. So it was a really, really uh, fun time to be a King fan.
2: I missed all of that. I was in military school at the time. Yeah. And so my, mo- my mother would mail me the, the little books as they came out. I'm going to blow your minds right now and tell you that there were not a lot of big readers at, military school like i was the guy that had all the books you know and so people would come and borrow them from me but i didn't really have anyone to talk to about as i as i read through those and um so i missed i missed all the screensavers i missed all the quizzes i missed all this fun stuff man fuck military school (laughs) yet another reason for me to say fuck military school so it's it seems crazy to ask this uh someone who's worked directly with stephen king so often but What's your Stephen King origin story like? How did he first come onto your radar? So in
0: 1979, probably before you guys were born. Yes, uh, I was. Yeah. I, I was living in uh, Halifax, Nova Scotia, going to university, the Housy University. Mm-hmm. And as a poor grad student or undergrad student who didn't have a whole lot of uh, you know cash to buy new books, I haunted the local. A used bookstore every weekend. It was called Back Pages on Queen Street in Halifax. Fortunately, I don't think it's there anymore. Um, and I was really big into science fiction fantasy in those days. I was reading Piers Anthony and Asimov and Heinlein. But on one of my weekend trips, I saw this black paperback cover uh, on an end cap in this. Uh, it was an old house, an old Victorian house with all these different rooms. It was a really, really neat place to to spend time in. But I picked it up and I said, Salem's Lot. And this was, like I said, 79. So, you know, this is even early in King's publishing history. Yeah. And I remembered hearing somebody talk about this book at some point in the past. And I couldn't tell you who it was or where it was even. But I just added that to the stack. It wasn't like, oh, my God, I got to get this. It's just like I had 12 books that day and that was just one on the stack. And I... Was you know, they talk about love at first sight. I was just captivated by the writing straight away, and I've always been a sort of a completist you know, I right. had all the Hardy Boy books, I had all the Agatha Christie books, and so once I find somebody that I like, I want to read everything by them. And so, in King's case in 1979, there wasn't that much. Uh, You know, there were the Doubleday books. Uh, The Dead Zone was just out, but it was only in hardcover. So that was beyond my means. But I went back and I read through everything and started keeping up with him from that point onwards. And by the time Cujo came out, I was to the point where I can't wait a year for the paperback. I got a splurge on the hardcovers. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And and that that was my gateway drug into buying hardcover books. Um, I remember writing to King's office, or probably to King himself, around that time. And one of the things that they, when they responded, they sent me the, his uh, bibliography, all the short story publications, and all of the uh, interviews and things like that from various, you know, magazines and uh, anthologies. And so I had that thing folded up in my wallet, and every time I went to one of the bookstores in town, I kept looking for you know the, the wedding uh, gig or you know s- some of these stories that weren't collected but they were in uh, you know uh, mystery magazines or the, the glossies and things like that and I, I just became a fanatic there's, there's no two ways around from that point on i was i was just hooked mainlining all the way
2: i suppose that means you were also taking that list and going to like you know flea markets and you're like all right i need these particular Men's magazines.
0: These particular, yeah, I'm very specific about my girly magazines. I don't yeah, like yeah, that no. one. I like that one. I uh, want
2: this issue of Cavalier.
0: Yeah. You're like, I'm the- doing
2: it for a story, and they're like, sure, <laughs> kid, whatever.
0: I really, seriously, for the articles. Yeah. But, but, <laughs> but then the hook that I got into then was when Pet Cemetery came out. And at the front of the book, they listed this book that nobody had ever heard of, The Dark Tower, The Gunslinger. And I thought, well, here's one I don't have. And so I just became a real pest. Back in those <laughs> days, you know, you would go into the bookstore, they didn't have computers. They had these great big books called Books in Print, and you always looked them up and they were always updated. And they, you know, I said, I want this book. How can I get this book? And i go to all the used bookstores, and just there's nobody even had any idea of how to get it. So once again, I wrote to King's office and i got a letter back the letter the letter is reproduced in uh, the road to the dark tower and it it was a form letter but i remember that that said you know there's been so much demand for this uh, that i've authorized a second printing and for the princely sum of 20 dollars, you can get a copy of the second printing of the gunslinger and that was the beginning of my road to the dark tower
1: That was still Grant, right? The second printing was 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 through Grant, and then the trade paperbacks came later, yeah.
0: Yeah, for like four or five years later. It wasn't until 87 that the paperbacks and the audiobook came out. So the original publications in fantasy and science fiction, if you knew about them, you could dig around and you could find the five parts that were previously Mm -hmm. published. But uh, I didn't know about those at that time, so uh, it was hard to get.
2: One of our listeners recently rounded those up. And sent us yeah. a picture of of the magazines. And I was just like, good lord. I've never been, I'd never even seen just a picture of the magazines, much less, <laughs> you know, considered like, what if you got all of them together? It was like, in, you talk about like bringing together the Infinity Stones or some <laughs> well, shit. Well, I was like, I, what I, I a t- cool. I'll t-
0: tell you the, 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 the thing that I did before I uh, knew better was I got the five copies. And I sliced them to pieces. Oh no. <laughs> and found them myself in this cardboard cover which had the one of the ads from Grant slapped on the front of it. And I had my own special copy of the gunslinger.
1: <laughs> I've seen like collections of, you know, of those original printings before, you know, in the early days of eBay, we're talking like late nineties. At that time, I'm like, oh, I can't spend a hundred bucks to get all these or whatever. and Now I wish I, I could have. But like, I went on the hunt for as many of the Donald Grant, you know, editions. Uh, at, at that point, I think it was right up to Wastelands, and, uh, yeah, uh, and I was able to get Wizard and Glass directly, you know, through Grant, you know, as a pre order or whatever. But, um but yeah, no, I just I would I would search eBay like probably two or three times a week, just search dark tower and like put highest price, you know, first, cause that was almost always the good shit. Right. And I remember always having to weed through the, that, fucking board game <laughs> the, the, the dark tower <laughs> board game there would just be pages and pages of that was like no like no, i don't want any of that shit give me the the Stephen king dark tower stuff so I, I never still to this day i haven't gotten a first edition gunslinger um but i i did someday this is gonna like be great for me i think because this is going to be my only way into getting that first edition i found a first edition dust jacket that was never used Uh So I have that like rolled like loosely in a, in a tube and it's been there for 20 years. And so my only hope is I'm going to find like a gunslinger first edition that has like a destroyed cover that, you know, is going to totally impact its value. And I can just roll that sucker right out and and have a a mint mint copy.
0: The the cool Uh thing about the fantasy and science fiction installments, they were spread out over quite a span of, you know, a few years. Uh And so at, at the beginning of each one, King would do a bit of a recap of what had come before. And you could see the story evolving as he was working on it, especially his concept of who the man in black was, whether he was Walter, whether he was Martin. And Mm -hmm. he sort of, uh, you know, at some points he thinks it's one thing. And then by the time he gets to the last one, he it's sort of gelled in his mind as to who these characters are. I I, uh, included those uh, afterwards in, I don't remember if it was the Road to the Dark Tower or the Dark Tower Companion, but one of the two, the the evolution is in the back of the book. You can see who's thinking on it.
2: Did you know, like at that point, while you were on the hunt for this book, what it was even about, or were you just going by the title?
0: Oh, it's just going by the fact that King had wrote written it. Uh, right, it, it could have been a romance novel, and I didn't care at that point. I just I I had to read everything that King wrote.
2: The Dark Tower uh, is such a, or or the Gunslinger are such great titles coming from him, just titles, you know, and the Dark Tower is particularly evocative. That could mean anything, you know. (laughs) It's exciting to think that there was a time where an author you were like super into had written this book. It pops up on a list and it's called The Dark Tower. I would have been losing my mind. It would be like if imagine if, if, you know, we're like researching Spielberg or something and you see like 1968, The Dark Tower. You're like, wait, what the fuck is that? You know, it, it would be that level of cool trying to track something down. That's that's really awesome.
0: And, and so the frustration in the the fan community during all those years was the big weight between the books. I mean, nowadays, yes. you know, if you want to read The Dark Tower, you can get all seven, eight books and sit down and read them back to back. But I started reading them in 1984 and, you know, didn't get to finish them until 2003. So we're looking at a span of almost two decades. Yeah, and some people were just you know batshit crazy impatient, whereas you know there was lots of other things coming out from Kingdom and Queen. So I just sort of took them as they came. But uh, obviously, as as soon as they came out, I, mean, I you mentioned w- getting Wizard and Glass. I, mean, I ordered Wizard and Glass from uh, from Grant. But it was the first one of the Dark Tower books that they actually sold copies into the chain stores, Mm -hmm. and so I got a copy at Walden Books because I couldn't wait for Grant to send me the (laughs) the, their their copy. So I had two copies of the Wizarding Glass.
1: I remember it being the opposite because I I was writing for uh, In It Cool News, you know, at that point when that came out, and I thought that, and I'm pretty sure that the way it worked was I. the Grant edition was supposed to arrive first. The pre-order was, and I think I got it like two weeks before it hit uh, main stores. I think maybe I'm totally misremembering it, but I remember that I got it uh, early and before it was widely available, and was able to like write a review of it on on the website.
2: I've told that that story on the or this story on the show before, but I was particularly vexed about the cliffhanger ending of three. You know, and I had I had read and reread over and over again the first three books before I went to military school. You know, I got shipped off and I was down there and I was there for about four years. And my parents would my parents would come down there sometimes and visit and take me into like town, which was like this. This is this place is hell. It's on like the border of Texas, Mexico. It's you know, it's 100 degrees at fucking six in the morning down there just awful and the little town attached to this to where this school was is just like it's bare you know a town in the loosest sense of the terms or at least it was you know when I was there but they were big enough to have a mall and my folks would always we would always go to the mall that was the big thing to do because there's nothing else to do in this town and we went to like you did uh, a Walden books and I just walked I strolled in and saw Wizarding Glass sitting on that counter and had a complete meltdown. I had no idea it was coming. You know, I was, you know, cut off from the rest of the world while I was down there. So it was like this thing I'd been waiting for years for. I picked it up and like didn't think it was real. I thought, well, what if it's like a display that <laughs> what if those pages are empty and they're just letting me know like two years from now, this book is going to come out. But man, my my heart exploded. My parents are like, what the fuck? Like, what is he? doing i'm like we've gotta buy this uh yeah that was the hardest part of the wait for me was between three and four on the books and i think i did write him a letter at some point about it but i never you know i never heard anything back i was probably one in a million letters so that well I you mean, know that, that
0: was that was like the when king's website went up for the first time that was like number one with a bullet and the faqs is when's the next dark tower book coming out mm-hmm. Perpetually uh i I know there's an anecdote that Steve tells that uh you know, you know his office staff answered most of his uh messages, but those ones they always laid flat on his desk so that he could just see the what they were dealing with you know <laughs> the, the and they man. get the, they'd get these like polaroid snapshots, you know write the next tower book or the teddy bear dies, and there'd be this picture of a teddy bear with a noose right. around its neck <laughs> All
1: right.
0: but uh so. You know, I, I kept up with the books, and you know, the first four came out, and then there was always talk about you know he had this big master plan that he announced in the first at the back of the first one that there would be seven total, and so when we got wind of the fact that he was back in the chair again working on the Dark Tower, that's what when I started thinking people had always asked me when I was going to write a book about Stephen King. First of all, it started off with Usenet. You know, I, I, people got to know me on Usenet because I'm the kind of guy when people ask a question if I don't know the answer, I'll go look it up. And so I, you know, answered a lot of questions. People thought I was smarter than I really was. Uh, <laughs> but I, I, I always uh, give credit to Steve Spignaci because he had this big book called The Shape Under the Sheet, which was the King Encyclopedia that listed all the characters and all the places and all the incidents. And so I just had that by my desk and I'd just look it up and say, oh, of course it was so-and-so. <laughs> but yeah, so, uh, and and that led to the writing the uh, the column for cemetery dance magazine, because the cemetery had been on a bit of a hiatus for a while. And when they re- got the magazine back going again, uh, Rich Chismar knew of me you know, mostly through the, the Usenet stuff. And he asked if I'd be interested in writing the column. And so then that sort of led to people saying, you know, when are you going to write a book? And I thought, I-, I can't imagine writing a book about Stephen King's work because there's just so bloody much of it. It would take me the rest of my life and it would be like 50 volumes Now, Bill Sheehan had done a really, really nice book called At the Foot of the Story Tree, about Peter Straub's books. And there's a manageable, you know, a dozen or so books that you can, you know, sink your teeth into. Right. So when I found out that the Dark Tower books were coming along, it got me thinking. So here's something that essentially spans his career. He started writing the first book when he was 19. And here, uh, all these years later, he's going to finish up the series. And it's got all of these tentacles that go into his other published works. Uh-huh. So that, you know, if, if a person could write a book about the Dark Tower series, you really could address his bigger career. And so I got a little bit audacious. My, my wife says, you know, if you don't ask a question, the answer is always no. So what I found out that he was done the three books in manuscript. I sent, a, I think it was probably a fax in those days, to his office saying, I've had this idea. If you hate the idea, just say so, and I'll I'll not proceed any further with it. But I'd like to do this book about the Dark Tower series. And in my wildest dreams, I think I said something like that, the FedEx truck would pull up in front of the house and deliver the manuscripts to the last three books in the series so I could start (laughs) working on it now and have the book ready for shortly after when the seventh book comes out. And within a day or two, I got a fax, text, well, I don't know, email, I don't remember how the response came, from uh, his office saying, Steve approves, the manuscripts are on the way. Jesus. And so a couple of days later, I got this shipment of five boxes of 2,500 manuscript pages of the last three books. Oh my God. About two years before they were all to be published oh my god and so i remember sitting there on the couch in the morning i'm an early morning uh, writer and i get up at five and i normally get up and write them but so for however many days it took i got up and i just had this big stack of manuscript pages just going through them first read through just read 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 take a page one stack put it on the next go through them all and so then i put together a book proposal uh, nonfiction is a little bit different than fiction. Uh, fiction, you have to write a book and then you sell it, whereas nonfiction, you sell a book and then you have to write it. Uh-huh. And so, armed with the uh, implicit uh, support that I had from King by sharing these manuscripts with me, although they did come with a caveat, uh, the, the note that came along with it said, Don't forget, Steve knows where you live. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, you know. Through I, would te- and all that stuff.
2: <laughs> I would be terrified to even have that box in my house. I would. Yeah,
0: even... I, know, I know. Like having and it-
2: 50 pounds of weed in your house or something. Like, <laughs> Someone's going to find out about
0: this. Yeah. And it was shipped through FedEx. So, you know, somebody could know that it's in your house. It's not like <laughs> right. Showing right. up by uh, some strangers in the middle of the night. So I put together a pitch, and my, my first approach was to Scribner. I thought, well, you know, there Scribner's publishing the last three books. You know, they're the logical one. But they already had Robin's Concordance, and they said they couldn't justify two books. But uh, the uh, publisher said, you know, w- we really look forward to reading your book. So uh, my next step was to go to Viking because they ha- had been King's previous publisher, and they had done, you know, I, I figured if anybody would want something that would help boost their, uh, their backlist, it would be them. And so I, you know, total naive that I was, I just went looking for people and I found the name of the vice president and I didn't, didn't, didn't have her email address, but I had other email addresses and I saw their format. And so I just sent Mm -hmm. the vice president of Penguin my, my, my pitch. Right. It was and one of those
1: where it was like first name dot last name exactly at, right and that yeah, kind of yeah, thing yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, I've, I, I've I've done I've done that before that, yeah, that's, that's a that's so a great I hack hit,
0: that's a great I hack. hit the bullseye on that one and she passed it on to Ron Martorano who ultimately became my editor. Um, I, I put together a thirty or forty page detailed outline that included one full chapter which was essentially the first version of the uh, first chapter in the Road to the Dark Tower, and for the rest is history as they say although I did get one very nervous phone call from Susan Moldau who was King's Scribner publisher very concerned that I you know the secrets of the Dark Tower not get out and I had to reassure her that the stand I was going to take once it became known that I had read the books and I was going to uh, write about them was that I would not answer any questions about the books at all except for how long the books were that was the one thing that i would say How many why was that the on? one
2: thing you would say
0: because i thought it was like something that was harmless and you know mildly interesting and it, that, that was the only thing i i, and I stuck to that uh, even my editor uh for the longest time he had to work purely from my stuff he didn't get to read the manuscripts until later in the project when i, I got permission to give him copies of those as well And so uh, my book came out uh, about two months after the seventh book, which was really nice timing.
1: It was great. I remember that time, too, because you, as a Dark Tower fan, you get through all that stuff, especially the last three books are dense in a way that the previous four aren't. And uh, I remember reading uh, your book. I remember reading Robin's Concordance's. Uh, And because of that point, I'm just like, I want to get kind of all this stuff straight in my my head. Um, I have a question. Since you knew the ending ending so far in advance, did you have any thought as to how it was going to be received, the whole circular nature of the the narrative? Did you read it and go, man, people are going to love it? Or did you read
0: it and go, man, people are going to fucking hate this? I don't know. I mean, I remember finishing it and thinking it was just the only ending that there could possibly be.
1: Right, exactly, yeah.
0: And I remember emailing—I guess probably by that point—emailing Steve saying he made me late for work because I had like (laughs) 200 pages left to go, and I just couldn't not finish. (laughs) I just blazed through those last 200 manuscript pages, and I was like half an hour, an hour late going into the office that morning. And and he said that was, you know, the best thing I could possibly said was, you know, (laughs) he he made me late.
2: So where along in the process of all this did you stop using an intermediary and start just speaking to King himself?
0: It was a bit of a process. Um, I think the first time that I really emailed him or corresponded with him directly was one of my columns for Cemetery Dance. I wrote this sort of throwaway line. King had done a screenplay for uh, a book by Patrick McGrath called Asylum. Yes. And if memory serves me correctly, it was somehow somebody got their hands on it, and I believe it was Ain't It Cool News. (laughs) And they said it was boring. (laughs) So I put that Uh. in my column, (laughs) and Steve read the column, and I got this communique from his office saying... We're sending you the screenplay. Steve would like to know if you really think it's boring. Or not. And here's his address, so you can correspond Oh my with god! And that was the beginning, really. But Eric, was I that welcome. you? You're welcome. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't think that was me
1: writing it i have no memory of writing anything like that sure, I'm, I, and, and I,
0: I'm not 100 sure it could have been coming soon or could have something like that but yeah, yeah something coming attractions like that. Or something. let's yeah, blame it on uh, them
2: because we want to get them on the show at some point yeah. and but, but then
0: subsequently i sort of split my communications with him. anything that was really business related i always went through Marsha de filippo at his office because she you know, she handled the business stuff. She knew the most opportune time to present something to King or his agent, you know, whereas I just sent it right to Steve and he was, you know, in the middle of a novel and just couldn't think about it and he might just go back and say, no, forget about it. Whereas Marsha would say, Oh, you know, in a month from now he's gonna have this downtime and we can talk about doing this. And so that stuff I I did separately. Business always went to business. The correspondences that Steve and I sort of carried on primarily had to do with the stuff that we're reading, the stuff that we're watching on television, the movies. Um, we have a very similar tastes. Uh, we like a lot of uh, crime fiction. Uh, we like a lot of the uh, foreign uh, Netflix uh, crime dramas, you know, the Scandinavians and the Flemish right, and, the Germans right. and all that stuff. So a lot of it was just bouncing uh, recommendations back and forth to each other and things of that sort.
1: It, it's weird how that worked. I remember like being so starstruck. One of the big things I got to do early in my Ain't It Cool days was I somehow got myself on the set of Lord of the Rings in New Zealand. <gasps> and it was for the reshoots for Return of the King. So I was already, I'd been a fan of the Tolkien books, of course. And then I was a fan of Fellowship and Two Towers had just come out. I went like two months after Two Towers had come out and they were doing like six weeks of reshoots uh, for Return of the King. And that's how I got to go out, and I was so starstruck. I'd been a huge Peter Jackson fan even before then. Like I loved his his horror stuff, Brain Dead, Bad Taste, Meet the Feebles, and and I'm like, oh my god, this is all so iconic. I get to I'm walking around Minas Tirith, you know, there's Gandalf was over there, and there are orcs over there, and I'm just like, my mind's being blown. And Peter was uh, such a huge fan. He was a huge fan of Ain't It Cool? Because he was just a giant geek, and that's how I was able to get on the set. Uh, but like. He didn't come up to me to like talk about. Oh, I'm here shooting a scene with Saruman right now. He came up going, "Hey, I saw that you guys posted a test screening review of League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. It's like <laughs> that. That doesn't look like that's going to be any good, does it? You know, that's all, he, all. All he wanted to talk about was like just a random movie stuff and and like uh, that. Relation, my relationship with Peter. Like I've gone back to New Zealand multiple times over the years, and that's pretty much. You know, uh, all, all we do is like, he'll come up and he's like, what's your favorite Buster Keaton movie? And we'll just <laughs> sit and, you know, and knock a few around. And he's like, well, what about, and I'm like, well, what about Chaplin? And he's like, ah, oh, Chaplin's fine, but Buster Keaton's my favorite. And, and of course he's right. Cause Buster Keaton is, is, uh, Brilliant. is the best. These people who we hold up as like kind of icons in their industry to, to be able to relate to them on. On just a nerdy level is like probably the best uh, way for a- any of these interactions to go. Like that, that that that's what you hope for. That's what you kind of dream for, and, and you dream about, and, and you don't want you know to just be standing there awkwardly, you know, and doing the Chris Farley, you know, interviewing Paul <laughs> McCartney, you know, thing. No, n- neither party uh, gets a good experience out of that.
0: Yeah. So the first time I met King in person was in Houston, in about. Eighty-eight, he was at the River Oaks bookstore touring to promote The Ideal Genuine Man by Don Robertson, the book that he published through Filtrum Press. So he'd always been a fan of uh, Robertson. And so when, when Robertson was having a hard time getting book- his books published, King published it, it through Filtrum. And he toured with that book. And that was the only thing he would sign. Uh, the talisman was just freshly out, but that was the only thing he would sign. So I, I met him briefly that time. I've gotten to spend time with him a number of times over the years. Uh, one time uh, I did a, I was at one of the co screenwriters of one of the dollar baby movies, mm-hmm. Gotham cafe, lunch at the Gotham cafe. And we got to go to Bangor and show it to him in a big screen theater. And there was only like four or five of us in the, you know, the, the director and the, the, uh, the other, one of the other screenwriters and me and Steve and some of his friends. And we just sat there and watched this 15 minute movie. And while they were uh, getting the print back to the people who brought it, he and I just got to hang out in the lobby and he was telling me about this idea that he'd had to hold this fundraiser. And he was going to invite J.K. Rowling and John Irving and they were going to have this thing in New York. They thought maybe they could get Radio City Music Hall to do it and there was just going to be writers talking about, you know, reading their stuff and talking about writing. And right. Ultimately, that became Harry, Carey and the uh, which I got to attend, which was uh, quite a cool evening.
2: To bring it back to the Dark Tower for a minute. Yep. You read those final three manuscripts. You write, I have a couple questions actually. Uh and, and then you write Road to the Dark Tower. I guess first of all, w- what was King's response to the Road to the Dark Tower? Like, can you tell me about that conversation when you had it with him?
0: Well, the the, the conversation started because my publisher, New American Library, wanted to emblazon on the front cover, authorized by Stephen King. Right. And I thought, so I emailed Steve and I said, this is what they want to do. What are your thoughts? Mm -hmm. And he said, if that's what they want, okay. But he said, understand what that signifies. It probably will be inferred that I, Steve, had oversight into what you've written and that you've been very careful to not offend me and it will sort of dilute the impact of the book. And I said, yes, that's all. I understand that. That makes good sense. Do you have something that you could give me uh, to put in its place? A blurb. At at which point he gave us this very nice, very, very generous blurb that says something to the effect of that I opened doors to the Dark Tower that not even I knew existed. And that's, you know, front and center on the book. And that was... When I passed that on to my agent and editor, they were doing the happy dance, they told me, and everybody was very pleased about that. Um, I tried not to bother him very much while I was working on that book. There were a few things that I asked him about, just very minor details that I wanted clarification on. Uh, One time he was very forthcoming. The other time he was more... um, Well, let's see. There's a line in one of the books, I think in Wizarding Glass where Stephen Duchesne looks at his son and talks about his son as the one who had lived. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, that means that Roland has siblings. And so I asked that question very directly. Uh, And he wrote back and said, yeah, he said, you're one smart Canadian, but he wouldn't be more forthcoming. Hmm. And then when I did the Dark Tower Companion, I gave it another shot. (laughs) And he actually told me that Everlyn, the nun who ran the uh, sanctuary where Roland's mother was sequestered, he said she knows the story of Roland's sister, and he named her. And so there's a footnote in the Dark Tower Companion that gives that information. But he was, again, very uh, tight with the details. He, he, did, he obviously knew the story, but he wasn't willing to share.
2: Now I'm, now I'm curious like and you may or may not be able to answer this but when steven says you're the one who lived is he meaning lived but, as in versus died or lived yes. like lived a more full life
0: you No, know? The, the implication is, is that roland had other siblings that didn't live that didn't survive
2: so presumably roland's sister must have you know died young
0: reasonably young because she's not in the story when he's doing his, uh, you know, his test to become a gunslinger. That's very compelling.
2: I don't have anything to add to that. That's just,
0: (laughs) (laughs) I I thought you had multiple questions, but, uh, uh, well,
2: my other one is a very hacky question, but here, let me, let me spruce it up a little bit. After you finish those manuscripts. Yes. What was your favorite overall dark tower book? And what is currently your favorite dark tower book? Because in my Um, experience, most fans over time, it it changes with with time.
0: I think mine hasn't changed, and it's always been The Gunslinger. Really? Uh, Just just because it was, for such a long time, the only one. And so I had reread that book a number of times. And I just loved how different it was from everything else The King had written. Yeah. It's uh, the the language is different, the mood is different, and it's it's very much a mood piece. I mean, things happen, but it's really to me that book was all about the mood, Roland's dark mood, you know, the the, the choices that he makes, uh-huh. and yeah, I've I've always had a really fond spot for that book, and so when I reread it, uh, so the the revised version came out while I was working on the Road to the Dark Tower, and so I reread the book in the revised version and yeah i mean i I can see his motivation for doing that because he didn't really know how things were going to happen at the end when he started and so he wanted to lay some of the groundwork for that but as a purist i'm still very much team 1982 the original gunslinger is the gunslinger as far as i'm concerned and it's always been my favorite and it's not the favorite of very many people i would say well it that one's got a very particular flavor. You know, well, it, it's it, you know, King himself admits that it, it turned a lot of people away from the series. People couldn't get through it, and so they didn't read further.
2: Eric gets mad at me when I say this, but <laughs> you know what I'm about to say. Yeah, I do. But uh, I came to Stephen King in the first place because my mother read Stephen King, and I was drawn in by the covers of his books, and I was a morbid little kid, and I liked monsters and scary shit, right? But she had one of the, she had the trade for uh, drawing of the three. I read a number of King books at a very early age and I kept seeing that one and it had pictures in it, which set it apart from the other ones. And I was very compelled by these images in the book. And I would repeatedly, I would like take it down off the shelf and bring it to her and be like, tell me about this one again. And she would just be like, Oh, you're not going to like that. It's about like, it's like a Western, but it's not. And it's like a, it's, there's like a, a, a cowboy. And, you know, he's got it like she was doing a poor job of explaining this, frankly. And eventually I just ignored the advice and read it and was like, what the fuck? This is fucking awesome. You know, (laughs) then I went back and got the gunslinger. And, you know, I knew at the time, you know, I'm very young at this point that if I had read the gunslinger first, I might not have been as as compelled as I was when I read um, Drawing of the Three of the three works like a blockbuster movie. It is yeah. just a machine for entertainment. You know, it is so awesome, and it has all these different uh, flavors and genres to it. You know, it's it just it, it kind of explodes your imagination. Um,
0: yeah, and a yeah. lot of people recommend to people who have had a hard time with the, the Gunslinger to just to leap ahead and then you know backtrack if you're interested. That's often, that,
2: yes, that and that's yeah. the piece of advice I I sometimes give to people who I suspect will not. Uh, respond to the first book is start with the second one and then treat the first one like uh, like a uh, prequel. Basically,
0: I often recommend to people that they start with the Little Sisters of Valeria. Oh, that's because the, because the book actually takes place before the Gunslinger, so you know chronologically, right. if you're going to start, and it it's at a time in Roland's life when he's not quite such an asshole. Right,
2: right. You so what you're he's saying,
0: more accessible.
2: To what you're saying in front of my co-host Eric right now <laughs> is that. <laughs> it is okay if someone starts with a dark tower story or novel that is not the gunslinger
0: oh i think it's absolutely okay
2: well 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 (laughs) <laughs> i what, what, on whatever the other hand takes,
0: whatever it <laughs> takes you know if you don't uh, like this I'm drug i've got yeah. this uh, drug here you'll want the other drug sooner or later <laughs> i I'm
2: with you on eye eye, to eye on this my man like that is absolutely correct eric your uh, point
0: avoider point avoider
1: <laughs> i say you don't deserve the dark tower if you can't start with a gunslinger
0: <laughs>
2: to the man I, I, that I wrote the road it. to the dark tower you say this
0: <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. You know, respectfully, I said this, this coming from a point of somebody who did start with the Gunslinger, so I can only talk in the hypothetical sense. But you know, if, if somebody said, "Oh man, this Dark Tower series sucks. I can't get past chapter one of the Gunslinger," I'm all for saying, "Just put it over here for a little bit and go hear it. You'll you'll want it. You'll want it." <laughs> yeah, the second yeah, that's, one. That, that's the that's second smarter. One,
2: is just so explosively entertaining i'm not saying the first one isn't i'm just saying it has basically one tone that it maintains for the entire course of the novel and it's weird it's like a it's a hallucinogenic western basically yeah. and, and if you're that's not one of the
0: problems i think that's one of the problems they had to come to grips with when they finally decided to make a movie mm. <laughs> yeah yeah not yeah. much happens in the first book you know, right. a guy drags a kid across the desert and they have a few little interesting episodes along the way. And then the kid does a spoilery thing. And then <laughs> the end, you know, and, you know, how do you make a compelling big screen movie out of that?
2: Well, you don't. I think I think <laughs> the way to and, and they did not, you know, as it turns <laughs> out. But I, you know, my and I, I think Eric agrees with me on this, that the Dark Tower mm-hmm. needs to be a series. And it needs to be a, a series with a budget and a and a visionary director behind it. My ideal version of the Dark Tower series is an HBO series where they bring in a different director for each season. And, you know, it's a it's a director who has talents that match the, the genre of that particular book, one book per season. So I would, you know, I would bring in John Hillcoat, the guy that did the proposition to to do the gunslayer.
0: Fuck, man, and- I'm John John Favreau. Yeah. Are On you the guys first one, the, are you guys watching The Mandalorian? I that am. Guy, but
2: he he wouldn't be my pick for the first one, though.
0: Man, like, you know that western Western vibe? He's got the Western vibe right to the core.
2: I, I know, but Hillcoat, dude, I'm telling you, like, yeah. look, you talk about hallucinogenic westerns. Go watch The Proposition. Nick Cave wrote that. It's 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 my favorite western of all time. Whatever John Ford title you can throw at me, I'm going to tell you it's 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 Hillcoat. The, the, the,
0: the big kick I got out of I me, mean, my wife and I have been watching Mandalorian. Just we're watching it now. We're in the middle of the second season, and I just loved seeing Timothy Oliphant show up in the first episode of the second season. Yes, because right. to me, Rayland Givens is Timothy Oliphant. It to me, is gunslinger. I've I always lobbied for Timothy Oliphant to be the, that. And somebody, when I posted about Timothy Oliphant being, a, and somebody said, yeah, basically he's railing Givens in space. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so that was great, it was perfect. And, and I actually and I, had the chance. I had the chance to pitch that. Because um, I, I did two interviews um, for the Dark Tower Companion. One was with uh, Akiva Goldsman, and the other was with Ron Howard. Mm-hmm. This was at the time when they had the the rights. And they... Right. They really they deconstructed the series, and they had this really interesting approach and and even though they had not yet written the scripts or anything like that, they laid it all out for me in these long telephone conversations, intimate detail of how they were going to do you know the the big epic stuff on the big screen and the small character pieces like Wizard and Glass you know as mini series in between and and akiva goldsman was really the guy who was the, the motivator behind cuz he'd loved the series and he read it much the same way i had and he had taken the books apart and you know created these big murals of scenes and moved things around and and i was really on board for with what they had in mind and so i think that's why i was more receptive to the movie when it came out than a lot of people were mm-hmm. because i had had 4 years to sit with this concept of what they originally imagined they were going to do.
2: I'm not opposed to that approach in principle, you know, and I understand that certain concessions would need to be made to make it palatable to an audience that has not read all the books, you know? Um, But that said, uh, I'm not a big Akiva fan and I've read his original draft of that script. And the only thing I really liked about it was that, Roland just straight up shoots Jake in the face at the end. <laughs> and, and I'm like, God damn, like that's brutal. You know, I love that moment because I, I honestly did not think that was going to happen. You know, um, and what they did with the movie ultimately felt like a watered down version of that entire yeah. remix concept. But I'll tell you what, we had Glenn Mazzara on the show before. Yes, okay. We did an entire episode with him. He showed us the pilot that he shot for oh, Amazon shit. for the Dark yeah. Tower series. It is it's really fucking good. In fact, we watched it, you know, before we interviewed him, and then not too long ago, I like within the last couple months, I I watched it again. And uh it was even better than I remembered it. And then he spent an hour laying out his entire plan for what that series would have been. And I'm I'm here to tell you that guy fucking understood it.
0: The... Yeah, so he understands King's stuff in general. I mean, oh, he, yeah. He was also, you know, he wrote a script for the uh, the uh, the Overlook. Love the that backstory. script, too. Yes.
2: He, it's incredible. Yeah. It's unfortunate that no one has cracked the Dark Tower on screen yet. I do think it'll happen. I just think you need the space to do it and, you know, the budget to do it and someone who really, really understands that series to tackle it. And uh, I don't know if committed,
0: they are committed to sticking with it. Yes. Uh, there's nothing to be any worse than do one, one and done season. If you're going to do it that in that format
2: and whether you, whether or not you do it straight up or this, you know, sort of remix concept that's been in play for like a decade now with all these iterations of it. Glenn's version sort of, you know, it starts with the man in black fled across the desert, et cetera. Then once Roland gets into Brown's hut and he dies, you know, rather than going to Tull, he ends up in uh god damn it, what's the name? Mages. The- Mages. Yeah. yeah, and and it's like, you know, it's uh you go into Wizard and Glass and it's like a young Roland. And I I appreciated this remix element of it because you get that classic opening all the way up to a point. And then it makes sense that you have a young it Roland was, and now they're doing Wizard and Glass and Well, he he was smart
1: enough to know that that uh Roland has chased the man in black across the desert more times than just uh, where it begins in the Gunslinger, right? Yeah, so he's yeah. able to, <laughs> you know, he's able to tie that into Roland trying to get revenge for what happened to his Plus, mother. Cinematically,
0: and- the only way you could ever tell the Wizard and Glass story is to do it at the beginning, because yeah, right. nobody else is going to be as patient as the readers are to go full stop in the middle of the series and spend eleven hundred pages in the backstory.
2: I didn't honestly. When I was a kid, so I would have been, I don't know, fourteen, fifteen years old when Wizard and Glass came out, and I read it. Um, I appreciated that they resolved the cliffhanger on Wastelands, but also I'm like, this is a romance novel, yeah, you know, <laughs> like it was not what I wanted at that point. And now in retrospect, and this was sort of what I was alluding to earlier with the the idea that with time your opinion changes on what the best book is. I I think it may be my favorite. I think it's. <laughs> the best written of the books and the most uh, how do I put it? It's the one I reacted to the most emotionally, except for maybe some of the, the later books where characters are getting killed off, you know, and then you're, you know, fuck, you're really, you're really upset when those things happen. But
1: there's something that King does in wizard and glass that I've only ever seen happen in a movie and very specifically the movie is psycho. Uh, and uh, I know this feels like a big stretch, but hang in there with me for a second. Everybody knows the twist to Psycho. Y- anybody that was born after 1970, you know, knows the end of Psycho before they see Psycho, right? Mm-hmm. They they know Norman Bates is, is the bad guy and, you know, is dressed up as his mom. Everybody knows that going into it the genius of that movie and the genius of Anthony Perkins's performance in that movie is that you don't want to believe it while you're watching it. And there's a moment where you go, maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this time I'm (laughs) watching it and it's not going to happen this way because he's so likable. He is so, uh, he's just so charming and like, you don't want him to, to do this. And King does that. You know, how, the the book isn't going to end well for Susan and Roland, right? You right. you know that story doesn't end well, and he does something that I still can't quite figure out how he fucking pulled it off. But because it happens every time I read this thing, where you get to a point where you go, oh my god, they're actually going to make it. They like th- this is it. They're they're making. They're going to be happy. They they they've reached the point that you they needed to reach, and they're they're going to you know things are different, and then you know and then susan doesn't make it out um uh but but i've never really experienced anything like that in another series especially one that i was this invested in and and it blows my mind it just i again i couldn't tell you how he does it structurally you know, whatever there's some secret sauce in there that elicits that feeling every time i read it
0: the the other thing i think i have that uh for the dark tower movie is the i got to see it in bangor uh, at, at an advanced screening with uh Robin Firth and Rich Chismar from Cemetery Dance and his kids and uh, Marsha DiFilippo from his office, and so that that was a bit of an experience too. Was it?
2: Was I'm sorry to interrupt, but was it, was it with just y'all or with an audience?
0: It was with a full audience. Yeah the the local uh, WKIT the the, the radio <laughs> King owns. Sounds
1: to me like you guys have seen yeah. them, watched a movie together.
2: Yeah, I'm pretty sure I was at that screening because. I was within a group of about I don't know eight to ten journalists that were flown up to New York and then Bangor.
0: Yes, for, you, yeah, I remember that. Yeah.
2: yeah, and I, I, Robin was was with us that day. Yes, on, yes. on a, yeah, so we,
0: we yeah. Were almost crossed paths. Yeah, Glenn yeah. was there. Uh, Steve came in a little bit of a thing at the beginning and then took off. They gave away some signed books and. uh, he watched the
2: movie with us. Um, the the one I saw, cause he was sitting, I, I just told this story in another episode of the show. So I'm sorry for anyone that heard it, but he was sitting a few rows behind us. And yeah,
0: yeah, we didn't see him there, but we had had dinner with him beforehand. That next cruising diner just across from the airport. And there were some people there from Sony who would come in for it. And so Robin and, uh, Marcia and a bunch of King's uh, family and cousins and friends and things like that, and that was where Flight or Fright was born.
2: Yeah, I, I you know, I, I read about that earlier today about how how that book came together, and I read about y'all being at that dinner, yep. and I was curious. Like, was this the same day I was I was up yeah. there because yeah, we were yeah, at the so. Chinese restaurant. You know, I forget the specific name of it, but. You know, jade of the orient from it they
0: took us there but yeah well, yeah, we, yeah we man you and
2: i've been in the same room together i think that's
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah. so, so that's a fun. lot of people had flown in from across the country i'd flown in from houston and uh, you know people from sony had come in from california and everybody had a story because bangor is not the easiest place in the planet to get to no
2: nope.
0: <laughs> you know it's little airplanes and puddle jumpers and tight schedules and all that so everybody had a story and so Steve's working the room, talking to people. We're at this long, long table, you know, it's like a big banquet table, a stretched out. I was sitting with Rich Shizmar and his two sons down at one end, and uh, you know, we're talking to Robin who's down there. And then Steve, at one point, he just looks up and he comes across the room, and he said, "I've just had this wonderful idea for an anthology." He said, "We'll p- bring together all the published stories, all the horror stories about flying." And then he looks at Rich. Uh, cemetery Dance publisher and says, "And you can publish it." And then he says, "But I'll need somebody to help me find the stories." And then he looks at me and says, "That'll be your job." <laughs> and I always joke to say to Rich and says, "You know, if I'd had to go to the bathroom uh, at that particular point when he had that idea and came over, I might have missed that opportunity altogether. It might have gone to Robin or Rich's sons or who knows who, who would have <laughs> right. pointed it up." anyway, so I got the I got the gig. And he had just read um, a collection of Arthur Conan Doyle stories. And there was the horror of the heights in it. And that was the one that was fresh in his mind that made him think of this. And then, of course, I thought of the Matheson story, A Nightmare of 20,000 Feet.
2: Mm -hmm. And
0: and then we were originally thinking that we would include the Langoliers for King's Contribution. Yeah, but you ran with an unpublished one. one. Yeah, but people think of the Langoliers as a novella. But the Langoliers is as long as Flight or Fright is without it. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. 90,000 words, and it would have you know, shifted the balance. Plus, because it's a quarter of uh, Four Past Midnight, getting the rights to it was going to be a little more difficult. And then at one point, Steve says, well, you know, I've got this idea for a new story. What do you think about that? And I'm thinking, what do I think about that? I think that's a wonderful idea. Yeah. <laughs> this anthology with a new King story is all of a sudden... Much more uh, commercial than the anthology with something that everybody who's a King fan's already read. And then while he was working on it, he was talking to his son Joe, and Joe says, "Well, I've got an idea for his story too." And that's how uh, Joe ended
1: man up look at that nepotism it. getting his kids
0: in <laughs> the business too. Well, well, I think it's reverse nepotism. The kids saying, "Hey, Dad, uh, I, I, <laughs> no, I, I, no we're much. we're big." Be- a We're big
1: fans of Joe, Joe here. That, that, that kid can can write. Your, I, kid, I think he's older than I am. So
0: <laughs> the thing so that amazes good. me about that story is that it has about eight main characters, and you see pairs of them, at least, from each other's perspective. And so you've got the liberal and the redneck. Okay. And you're inside their heads, respectively, and you can sympathize with each of their positions. It's a very... Democratic in the lowercase d, uh, Catholic in the lowercase c version of, you know, everybody's got a point of view and they're all valid in their own minds. And the balance of those characters, you know, uh, the story aside, which is a fantastic fucking story about, you know, being in an airplane when the world ends. But just the way he handles the, you know, you rotate the camera 180 degrees and look from the other perspective. Really, really well done.
2: I've been I've been super impressed with with Joe's work.
0: Um, well, I mean his short story collection, which you know, Twentieth Century Ghosts, which came out before anybody knew who he was. That is like bar none one of the best. You know, especially as an introductory collection, but short story collections of horror stories—they're just bang bang bang—and and they're so different. I mean, there, there's one in there called Pop Art. Which, if you try to describe that story to somebody, they'll think you're going off your mind. It's about this boy whose best friend is an inflatable balloon kid. Yep. Mm -hmm. And it just sounds ludicrous when you try to describe it, but it is so sensitive and so amazing and so touching.
2: The opening story in that collection is, uh, I I believe it's called Best New Horror. Yes. And it is one of the all-time scariest short stories I've ever read. I find it utterly horrifying, and I'm dumbfounded that someone hasn't turned it into a movie. When I heard Scott Derrickson was working with Joe Hill, I was like, fuck, I wonder if he's doing Best name Horror, because that would make for such a good movie. But no, he's doing the the Black Phone. They're shooting it in North Carolina right now, if I'm, yep. if I'm correct. Yep, but. I think so, yep. And for those who have not read flight or fright, that's got a King short story. As far as I know, you can't get it anywhere else. The turbulence expert. Is that correct? Correct.
0: That's correct. That's the only place that it is. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So if you have not picked that up, you definitely need to give that a go. And, um,
0: and the the neat thing working on it was, uh, so King wrote a, a nice introduction to the book too, which has the scariest freaking flying story. And it's a true one, but the time he almost died, Mm-hmm. On, a, on a flight. And then he writes little introductory snippets to each of the stories as well, except for mine. He said I should write my own introduction for my story. How's <laughs> he,
2: has, has he to work with as a collaborator? Uh,
0: he's, he's absolutely brilliant. I mean, we were so much on the, the same wavelength. I mean, we, we were pitching stories. The, the thing we discovered was we didn't have a, an embarrassment of riches to work with in terms of short stories about flying. Once we started looking, there's not like we didn't discard any. We we had to like beat the bushes to find what we did to, to make the anthology. Uh, but every time you know we sent one back and forth, it's just like oh yeah man. And I was a little bit hesitant to uh, to put one of my stories in. It was very late in the game, uh, and I just sent him zombies on a plane just on a whim, just because I thought he'd get a kick out of it. And he said, oh we got to put this in the book too. <laughs> so that's how zombies on a plane ended up in there and then i'm editing told- it of course yeah put it in there come on well, yeah yeah there are different uh opinions on whether editors should include their own stories or not but we, we, <laughs> we, we, we both did so we each included the other person's story we can argue it that way
2: yeah i think if you're co-editing an anthology with stephen king and you have a short story that fits in it I think everyone else should shut the fuck up and you get to put your story in there, <laughs> you know, unless it's like, you know, written in crayon on a bar napkin and it's really terrible.
0: unless Yeah, that's
2: what I'm saying. Yeah. Unless yeah. it's just garbage, you know, like, yeah. yeah, of course, get it in there. And um, then I got to
0: write the afterword. And when the audio book came along, uh, Simon and Schuster Audio asked if I would record my afterword which was a new experience for me. I got to go to a little recording studio, which was in somebody's house in West Houston, and be on a set of cans and Skype with the uh, engineer producer up in New York City. And afterwards, only maybe six, five, five six pages long. I thought, yeah, I'll be in and out of here in no time. And I think it took me 45 minutes, maybe. And yeah. it's really like making a movie cut yeah. let's hit that one again and she must yeah. have ended up with probably a thousand little snippets that she was going to, have to put together to, you know because there were words she wanted to be hit, hit in certain ways and uh tones of voice she wanted me to use and try it this way and try it that way And man i mean i, I know that the uh, the uh actors who do audiobooks are you know more experienced and they probably don't get as much Direction as I did, but it was it was a really really interesting process.
2: We've tried to bring a little attention to that on this show. We we had Stephen Weber on who recently yeah. who recently read it, and I don't know if you've heard that, but it is. I haven't live. heard it,
0: but God, that mm. must have been a labor of love. <laughs> yeah,
2: yes, he spent a lot of fucking time on that. I I think we asked him like, were there times where he just wanted to like get up and walk out of the room? <laughs> like like this thing is so goddamn long, but. Uh, it's one of the all time best audiobooks I've ever heard. I mean, he just murders He's that great.
0: thing. It's it's what, what did I read that I really like? Uh, listen to it. oh, um, Duma Key. John Someone Slattery. John Slattery from uh, Mad Men reads it.
2: Yeah. It's f- it's Duma funny Duma you mention that because I has just the
0: perfect. You're sarcastic. like the third person in
1: in like two weeks to bring up that exact thing. Yeah, there was after a free
0: metal has got sort of a sarcastic tone and he just nails it and it is so good
2: I, I've got to listen to that because Eric is right we've we've had it recommended a number of times now and just just this morning I was responding to somebody in the uh, KingCast inbox like who was asking us to rank like our favorite you know narrators of of King stories and they use that as, a, as an example they had just finished hearing that I haven't heard it yet but I've also been like in the last few months, uh, Duma Key just keeps coming up, I'm like, I gotta reread that one. That one and uh, Leesy's story are are ones I need to revisit, and um, I think I'm gonna take the plunge. I just keep hearing about this John Slattery. I gotta, I gotta find out.
0: Yeah, I Me, mean, are you are you familiar with Mad Men? Did you ever watch Mad Men? Oh yeah, I yeah. So. We he had a, a
2: rich rich summer on the show who was on yeah. that. Um,
0: and speaking of Leesy's story, man, that's that's one I can't wait. They were so close to finishing the miniseries when they got shut down with COVID. Right. And I haven't heard if they've started back up again or not, but that's a series. I mean, King wrote the whole thing.
2: I'll I'll tell you that Pablo Lorraine is a fantastic director, you know, and with that cast, like, I think that, that that's going to be like a top shelf production. I cannot wait to see that. Um, People
0: often ask me what my favorite King book is. And I, I'm one of these people who, whenever you ask me to, you know, do a top ten list or what my favorite is, I just my brain freezes. I'm, I'm clinically incapable of ranking <laughs> things in order. It's just a genetic flaw. But the bookend pairing of Bag of Bones and Lisey's Story, to me, you know, if if they're not my favorite kings, they're definitely top ten tier. Because, you know, Bag of Bones is about the author whose wife dies, and he has to deal with that. And Lisey's story is about the wife of the author after the author dies. And to me, they just form this beautiful bookend set.
2: I had not made that connection. That's an interesting way to look at that. I have one final question for you. Do you think that King will write another Dark Tower book?
0: (laughs) Good question. He has talked about it on occasion. The comment he made when the graphic novels came out. Was that he did not want to read their section on the battle at Jericho Hill. Yes. Be- because if there was one story that he wanted to tell, that would be it. But whether or not, you know, th- there's lots of things that, you know, he has ideas and they require some particular flash to come along to bring it all together. And whether that will happen or not, you know, only uh, only Ka knows. Right,
2: that, that of there course.
0: will be another story if God wills it, you know, all, we can do all sorts of Dark Tower riffs. Uh, it, it would be fun. I would not be devastated if he didn't, because he's writing all sorts of good stuff anyway. He's got a new book coming out in just about three weeks called Later. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is another hard case crime, uh, but an extremely supernatural novel. An, and there's been an evolution with this hard case ones. Uh, Colorado Kid has theoretical supernatural overtones. You know, there's mysteries that can't be solved. Uh, Joyland, there's no doubt that it's probably a ghost story. This mm-hmm. one, right, at, right, right out of the gate, the, this kid's got this special talent, and there's no question this is a supernatural crime novel.
2: My Love. prediction is that before this is all said and done, we're gonna get some other piece of the Dark Tower from King. Yep. I would be surprised if we did not. But I also agree with you that if we didn't, like it's fine. It's how it's long fine. has
0: it been since uh went through the keyhole?
2: That must have been 2000. what twelve, Eric? Eleven?
0: It was before before I did uh the Dark Tower companion. So that's like we're talking nine, ten years. Yeah. which would be the longest that we've ever gone without getting something new in the dark tower world. Right. But if you look at the cycle over the years, you know, the books came out on 6-7 year cycles on average. Mm-hmm. So we're we're due for one if it's going to happen.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean I could see a short story. I could see another little sisters style revisiting I mean I think that they're well and also technically pretty much every book that that uh, is released is a dark tower book in some in some uh, small way right well, yeah, so, it, it, uh,
0: even later uh, later's got all, all sorts of things and the people are going to uh, right. say oh wow he brought that in
1: well I mean and just we, we just were discussing the CBS all access the stand you know the coda that he wrote for that you know, it has uh, turtles in it. You know, it has, you know, it, it has uh, I don't, well, but we don't know. We don't there.
2: know if that turtle was written into the script, is the thing. It's definitely got the Cobb reference with the wheel right there yes. at the end. Yeah. You know, and the implication it, he, is certainly there, but the turtle in the circular storytelling. I mean, it's, it's, it's most
1: definitely more well, dark tower th- than like anything it, that's it, ever it, been uh, a Randall fly of
0: course it. it's dark tower. Right. That's my, that's <laughs> my thing. I'll but, tell but you explicit.
2: what, I'll tell you what I want very specifically. I want two books. One of them is a dark tower anthology. You know, the, the backbone of that book is the battle of Jericho Hill. It's a novella, Right. And the other books in this anthology are tales from Midworld, essentially, or Endworld, you know, where we're just sort of exploring little corners of this world. The world building in the Dark Tower series is unparalleled, maybe outside of outside the uh, Lord of the Rings, as far as I'm concerned. So let's explore some of those corners. Let's get Battle of Jericho Hill out of the way and... And then the other book is just stories of flag. Like I'm endlessly fascinated with that character. He's been to a billion worlds. He's crumbled. How many empires like there, there must be so much to explore there. And those are the two really big efforts I would, I would love to see from, from him eventually. But
0: I tell you, if I was writing a flag story, my main point would be to show what a monumental fuck up he is. (laughs) Yeah. Because, Dude, he
2: goes out like, when when Mordred gets him, you know, at the spoiler, uh, when Mordred gets him in Dark Tower, you're like, how could this happen? But it's because he's, it's because of his hubris. He just thinks he's, he's never, more powerful.
0: He's never, he's never as good as he thinks he is. Yes. And, you know, you know, the flag from the eyes of the dragon. Sure, he caused all sorts of chaos, but ultimately, just not good enough. And I, I'm, I was working on this uh, essay on uh, the stand for an, another project. And I came across this quote that King uh, gave in an interview really early on when he was, uh, I guess, when he was working on the, uh, the re- revised version of the stand. And he says, you know, basically, if I could have turned Flag into a used car salesman at the end, <laughs> but, uh, just to show how far he had fallen. He said, I could never quite get away with it. But, you know, like a Las Vegas show guy, because I, yeah, I mean, a lot of people adulate Flag, whereas I've always seen him as just a shit disturber with high uh, aspirations who just can never quite close the deal.
2: He's usually more powerful than any character in a in whatever story he's appearing in. Not always, yeah. but usually. But also, but, but like, like if you looked
0: in the in the miniseries, you know, I really loved the way they deflated him. Oh yeah, it absolutely. Was, it, it was just the fact that everybody else lost their faith in him, and then he just withered up and.
2: Well, the the puncturing of flag is definitely a part of the character. I always describe him as like Loki, like a trickster god. Oh yeah, you know. Very definitely. But the puncturing of that is, is also a running thing. It happens in The Stand. It happens in Eyes of the Dragon. And it certainly happens in The Dark Tower. We talk about getting fucking punctured. But um, <laughs> that is key to the character, you know. And, and a used car salesman is, uh, is pretty dead on. You know, he, he might be getting the sales all the time. But sooner or later, you know, he's going he's gonna to fuck himself over by, you know, overextending himself or thinking too much of his sales prowess.
0: Yeah, and he, so, he doesn't have very much upward mobility in terms of a career.
2: Not really. <laughs> you know, and he still had if it wasn't Mordred, he had the the, the Crimson King to answer to, yeah. you know. Yeah. So anyway, uh, this is usually the point in the show where we. Uh, well, Eric, do you have any final questions?
1: Uh, well, not for me, but I have a final question on your behalf, because this is a question that you've raised multiple times that I don't really have the answer to. I can just infer what's on the page. It's about Dandolo. um Yes, yes, yes. And Please, now absolutely. that we have you next to having King himself here to talk to about this, you know, we, we've talked a lot about how Dandolo is could very well be from the same species as, as Pennywise. Right. Instead of feeding on on fear he's feeding on laughter and i think that that's definitely hinted at in within the text but like do you have any further insight into what exactly dandolo is
0: i think they are related yeah. they they I mean the king has this concept of the outsider yeah. and she has explored that in a number yep. of his books um probably including first, the outsider <laughs> including the outsider but, but but in the first case where he really went into it was Bag of bones because Sarah Tidwell is not the villain in *Bag of Bones*. Sarah Tidwell's ghost has been invaded by an outsider. This concept oh. of something from outside of our universe—of course, it's very Lovecraftian. Uh, you know, *Revivals* got outsiders, which you know, the, the ending of that book is probably one of the most terrifying, brutal things King's ever written.
2: Man, you ain't lying.
0: I think Pennywise is of the same ilk, and as Dandolo. they're not the same entity. No, but, uh, they may have crossed paths or they may have come from the same place or but they're certainly uh, they've got the same type of uh, needs from humanity. Well, yeah. my
2: pitch is like this is a planet and the beings on this planet feed on different emotions. If Dandelo feeds on laughter, Pennywise feeds on fear, outsider feeds on grief like these are these are certainly the same species of thing. I'd bet money on it. I'd bet money on it. Like, it's, (laughs) it's, it's, it's one's a vegetarian,
0: one's (laughs) Presbyterian. I mean, they they could be from Chodash space. Mm -hmm. Um, That's true. I I think, I mean, I don't think of planets. I think of other worlds and not in the Dark Tower sense, but like other. Well, totally.
2: I don't think, I don't think Pennywise ever gotten a rocket you know, and, and although, travel.
0: Although the the flashback in it seems to imply that's the way his arrival appeared to whoever. Well, stopped. well, he's, he's kind of right. riding a
2: meteor. He's right. Yeah. It's like a comet or a meteor, right? Like, but I don't think what I'm saying is like, I don't think there's a literal planet of the same species is the best way I can put it. I don't know how they got here, but they're coming from the same place. And that's, yeah, and, that's, and
0: King has said that. Uh, that, that question came up on the message board at one point on King's website, and Marsha went off and asked him, and he came back and said basically, they're not the same, but they're likely of the same species. But the, uh, one of the Boom. things you have to is that King doesn't think about this stuff as deeply as we do.
2: <laughs> right, right. He doesn't
0: sit around and say, oh, I wonder if a At some point, he might, if that becomes part of what he's working on, but you know, he writes these things and then, you know, he moves on and he doesn't go back always. You <laughs> right. know, I probably have thought more deeply about certain things in the dark tower series than he has.
2: But I think that if like a thing, if there's a, like this Dandelo, Pennywise outsider thing, right. There's a through line there. I don't feel like that's not a QAnon conspiracy where you're, <laughs> where you're inventing things wholesale and just sort of making connections that don't have a logical through line. Again, it it would not surprise me if we are thinking about this more deeply than King, but I also think that's existing in his subconscious, you know? And, and these
0: stories just happen to him, you know, the the magic of Stephen King is how these stories just bubble out of him, like oil out of the earth, fully formed in a lot of ways. I Man, I remember asking him when I was working on the Dark Tower Companion about Farson, mm-hmm. because there's a lot of debate about Farson. Is Farson another guy's a friend of flag? He's got the F name and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And but if you remember, if you go back to the original version of the Gunslinger, in the first version of it, Farson was actually a place. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, when it got fixed up, you know, he became a, a person. But he said, "Yeah, no, Farson's just a guy." You know, he's he's like Flag, he's you know, he he's dealt with flag, he's just a guy. But he's not quite so clear in his own mind on the duality, triality, whatever you want to call it, about the man in black, Martin Broadcloak, uh, Walter. I mean we think we've got a handle on them, but in his own mind he still has some questions about what the relationship among those characters is.
2: Okay, I lied, I have another question. If (laughs) um, Was there a point when you were researching Where you drew a connection, brought it to King, and he was like, huh, um, yeah, yeah, that's what I meant to do there. Can you give me an example of you surprising him with a connection that, you know, he could confirm or deny? We didn't
0: really, I mean, like I said, I could count the number of questions I asked him for both books in total on the fingers of one hand. Oh, were Very specific and... Uh, so I, I don't can't think of any instances like that
2: fair enough fair enough
0: i did i did uh my one of my claims to fame i i, I can say you know when the uh, the books were reissued they all came out with these new re re subtitles or captions
2: mhm yeah
0: so i i came up with the one for song of susanna reproduction that fits <laughs> i don't get it <laughs>
2: Read the damn book.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, we should look
2: into those, Eric. They sound interesting.
1: Yeah, I, I've, I've first heard one is
0: hard to get through. You might want to skip it and go straight to number two. <laughs> just, just to
1: put a pin in this, you are you are not you. Hold on, you are not advocating for anybody who wants to start reading Dark Tower to skip Gunslinger. You're saying oh, if you have it. a problem with it, oh, yeah, then so. maybe maybe go go back. Bro, he totally. said, "You're little,
2: not." Yeah, no, in fact, he said. He advocated for little sisters of Illyria. You're blown out of the water, Vespy. You're done on this one. No, no, publish order or get the fuck out. All right. Well, we're gonna we're gonna talk to Robin Firth soon. We'll get her opinion <laughs> on this. We'll uh you know, we'll we'll find I'll, out.
0: I'll, I'll send I'll send Robin some back channel email. You better go on. <laughs>
2: <laughs> she is she is, a, she is a delight, by the way. Yeah, I love her. Um, I I hung out with her outside of Stephen King's house, you know, in Bangor when we were on that tour, and one of the best people you could ever talk to about King or Dark Tower shit, just a delight.
0: Robin's great. I, I interviewed her twice for the Dark Tower Companion.
2: Well, this is usually the point in the show where we ask our guests or or invite our guests to plug whatever they're working on now. Do you have anything that uh, might be of interest to our our readers you'd like to talk about?
0: Sure, I have a few things. Uh, if you don't mind uh, me plugging another podcast. Uh, I appear in the no, first, sure. first episode of uh, Out for Blood, which is a podcast which has been running for the last few weeks about the uh, ill-fated musical based on Carrie.
2: Yes, I've seen and those these, guys in my feed.
0: Yeah, the, these guys have been in lockdown and they discovered an old videotape, a bootleg videotape of one of the shows and they just got interested in digging into it and they found everybody to talk to. Uh, producers, actors, you know, people who audition. So that's sort of fun. I talked to them in the first episode about how Carrie happened as a book. Um, coming up this year, Brian Keane and I have a two novella collection called Dissonant Harmonies. My story is called uh, The Dead of Winter. And the the concept was that Brian and I always talk about music, and we've got some overlap in our likes and dislikes, and some orthogonality. And so we created a playlist for each other to listen to as we each wrote a novella.
2: Did you say orthogonality? Yes, I did. Um, what does that mean? I'm just curious.
0: <laughs> the, the, I'm just going to tell right.
2: you straight up. I have no idea. With
0: are at right angles to each other.
2: Orthogonality. Okay. So,
0: yeah, so so sometimes if they're parallel, you know, you're going in the same direction. If you're orthogonal, one guy's going up and the other guy's going left and right, and so there's no okay. so I'm going to be that.
2: overusing that term in the next <laughs> in the next couple of days, but I thank you for introducing it to my life.
0: And so Cemetery Dance is publishing that first as a limited hardcover for their uh, the readers club, and then they're going to do a trade paperback. Awesome. And then I, I dipped my toe for the first time ever in self-publishing, and I have a novella on but uh, big online bookstore chain thingy uh, called the Ogilvy Affair. It's about, about uh, twenty thousand word novella, a crime story.
2: Um, I guess you haven't experienced the you, you haven't had the full self-publishing experience uh, yet because you haven't seen how it's performed.
0: I'm supposed to be a little bit more blatant about that, right? <laughs> yeah, well... Uh, like, my, I give I, it URL? <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I'm, I'm wondering... Well, first of all, yes, if you have one. But secondly, like, uh, how have you found that
0: experience to be? Well, I, I just did it because I had this story that I first wrote 20 years ago. And it's grown and grown to the length where nobody else is ever going to publish it. Because it's not long enough to be a book and it's too long to be a short story. And I, I sort of like the story a lot. And so I've toyed with the idea. And, you know, during lockdown, I had some spare time and I found out, hey, man, this is actually not all that hard. No wonder everybody's doing it. So I formatted it for the Kindle. And then I decided, OK, I'll format it for the paperback version as well, just because. And threw it up there. And, was, you know, it's only been up for about a month and I've sold enough to pay for the uh how much I laid out for stock photos for the covers, so you know. Hey, it's in, <laughs> in, in, in the black, so, hey, successful. <laughs> yeah.
1: And so, it's what's just, it called again?
0: Everybody should go. Should yeah, go, uh, it's called the you know. Ogil, Ogilvy affair. O g i l v y, the Ogilvy affair.
2: I've read this thing; and it has a lot of orthogonality in it. <laughs> um, <laughs> You folks are going to want that orthogonality. Like, get in there. Well, thank you very much uh, for joining us today. This is this is a fucking delight. Um, and thank you sincerely for for your tangential work to the Dark Tower series. It's it's orthogonality. Ma-
0: like
2: yeah, your orthogonality <laughs> too. God damn it, I'm already failing the orthogonality test. But yes, thank you for that, and thank you for being here. And hopefully, we can find a reason to have you on again
0: my pleasure anytime you want you know where to find me
1: the Kingcast is a fangoria podcast production the show is produced hosted and created by eric vespe that's me and scott wampler tiara Ansley and Abi goel are executive producers daniel danger is our art director and editing is done by yours truly